Okay. Congregation participation. Who, uh, who can tell me, who remembers what we've been talking about this month? Anyone? Jesus. That's good. Yes, kind of. I didn't anticipate that. That's always the right answer. How can I say no to that? What specifically, maybe? Okay, so this, this is really, uh, uh, you know, for a pastor preacher, this is kind of an embarrassing question. And when he asks you, well, what have we been talking about? Because they may not remember. Uh, but here's the ironic thing, okay? The ironic thing, as I ask that question, is that we've been talking this month, in kind of this month between series, we've been talking about remembering. <laughs> so it's, it's kind of a trick question and kind of an ironic question. What have we been talking about? We've been talking about remembering and we've been talking about our bad memories. That's kind of where we've been. We're forgetful people. Uh, I am a forgetful person. And uh, one of the things I absolutely always forget and hate it when I forget is computer passwords. We were trying to set up a new gaming system at our house yesterday, and you had to have email accounts, and you had to set up sign-in names, and pass- And I nearly lost my religion, uh, so frustrated because of passwords. Some of you are chuckling because I asked you for help. Uh, I hate passwords. I cannot, there, there are too many, and there's too many different combinations. Uh, I hate it. I had a uh, professor in seminary one time who said this, and he, he said, you know, when we get to heaven, there won't be any passwords, or there'll be one password, and the password will be Jesus, okay? And you'll be, get, you'll be able to get in, okay? But hell will be full of passwords that you can never remember. That's just a little, you know, full of passwords, and you can never remember them. We are forgetful people. Uh, and not just about silly things, but we're forgetful people, the Bible would say, about really the most important things. And so two weeks ago, I took us to Second Peter, where the Apostle Peter said, uh, I want to remind you of some things that you're forgetful about. So you can go back and listen to that. But he reminded the believers of two things. One, that God was working among them, that he had given them everything they need for life and godliness, and also that they needed to put forth some effort in following Jesus, right? If you were here last week, uh, I took us to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where Paul says, I want to remind you of what's of first importance. I want to remind you of the gospel. How could they forget the gospel? Well, how do you and I forget the gospel daily, sometimes hourly, right? He says, I want to remind you of first things. I want to remind you of the gospel. Uh, On one side of my family, both grandparents in their later years suffered from dementia. It's sad. It's sad. Uh, It's scary. It's disheartening. Um, Sometimes you wonder if physical loss or mental loss, which one is worse, right? Physical pain or 
or mental pain. Some of you have been there. You've, you've wrestled with that. You know what that's like. Um, the Bible would say that we all have gospel dementia, gospel forgetfulness. And we need to be reminded over and over of what Jesus has done for us. So uh, some of you have been over in the office building, you've come and visited me, been in my office or whatever, and, and lots of people, when they come in, they comment that, Ross, do you realize that your keys are still in the door here? Because that's my memory thing. That's how I remember where my keys are. I just leave them in the office door, and people are always scratching their heads about that. Why do you do that? Well, I do that because that helps me remember that I know where they are. Um, because I'm forgetful about little things like that. So that's this device, that's this thing I've done to not forget where my keys are. Now, I don't do that at home. When I get home and in the front door, I put them somewhere else. But at my office, I always just leave them in the door. I figure, you know, if, if, if Jody or Jay or Katrina or someone come by and steal my keys, they'll, they'll probably give them back, you know. But that's my device. Here's the help this morning. God has given us a memory device to be reminded regularly of the good news. And guess what that memory device is? The Lord's table. The Lord's table that lately we actually for all of 2019 have been participating in weekly regularly. Communion is a memory device. Jesus has given us this reminder to be repeated over and over to remind us of the good news of Jesus, okay? So this morning, I want to take us uh, to this most frequent passage about communion, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. So if you've got it, uh, stay there. And if you haven't gone there yet, uh, go there with me, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and we're going to look at some parts of chapter 11 that to my chagrin, to my guilt, conviction, we don't talk about enough when we set up communion, okay? This passage today, this passage that I've looked at this week, really presses in on us, okay? It really gets personal, in some ways that I think I've personally neglected, and I think even as a church at CC, we haven't perhaps taken seriously enough, okay? It really presses in on us. So uh, we're going to look quickly, albeit, but at verses 17 through 34, and we typically focus on verses 23 through 26 when we take communion, but so I'm going to spend less time on verses 23 through 26, I'm going to spend more time on the preceding and then the post-seeding. Is that a right? Is that a word? Uh, verses 27 through 34. Okay, I'm going to spend more on the front and the back, and then the middle not as much because we're typically there. Okay, so 1 Corinthians chapter 11. But I want to start first of all. Not in verse 17, but in verse 2, okay? Because I think it sets it up and some things here we need to talk about. So verse 1, Paul says, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. But verse 2 says this, 
Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. Let me read that one more time, okay? I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. Now, right away, some of us, some of you perhaps, uh, don't like the word tradition. I mean, just you're not a traditional person. In fact, you are looking for a church and you've maybe found a church and you're like, I like it because it's not traditional. So here's the bad news for us this morning, okay? Or it's really good news, actually, is Paul says, for a church to be a true church, you need to maintain the traditions. And honestly, there's not many of them, okay? Every family, and the church is a family, so lots of different metaphors for the church in Scripture, but it's called a body, it's called a family, it's called a holy nation. Um, what else am I missing? Uh, but anyway, the church is a family, and all families have traditions, and the church for 2,000 years has had two traditions that it has really taken seriously. And those traditions are, as you can probably guess, baptism and the Lord's table. Now, there are parts of the Christian family that have more than two traditions, okay? If you grew up in a Roman Catholic context, they don't just have two sacraments or two ordinances, but they have seven traditions or seven sacraments, okay? But most Protestants for 2,000 years have practiced two traditions. And you can't be a true church without maintaining these traditions. It's part of what it means to be a church is to maintain and to practice these traditions. So in an era and a place where we like everything new and everything relevant and everything contemporary, Paul here is pressing in on us that you need to hold fast to traditions, the ones that are biblical, not man-made traditions, okay, but God-given apostolic traditions. You can't do away with those. In fact, at the time of the Reformation 500 years ago, one of the ways that Protestant reformers uh, defined what is a true church from what is a false church is that they would say, this is how you know you're in a true church. They'd say the gospel is preached, okay, the unadulterated gospel grace is preached. And then secondly, the sacraments, baptism and communion, are rightly administered. That's how you know you're in a true, a true church. It's one of the ways you know that you're in a true church. Because the gospel is preached and these traditions are maintained. And maybe everybody in this room is totally on board with me. And if so, I love that. But I would submit to you that, again, in the era that we live in and the part of the country that we live in, that we don't tend to be very traditional about our church. And rather than picking up on other churches that I think have gone to way far extremes to not be traditional but to be relevant, okay, uh, I mean, 
to crazy extremes, let me just pick on ourselves, okay? Let me just pick on Centennial Church. Uh, when I began attending this church as a student, yay, 14 years ago, uh, attending here, the tradition of this church was non-tradition. Did you catch that? The tradition of this church was non-tradition in the sense that this church, the one that you're sitting in right now, had a tradition of not practicing the Lord's Supper. Like it was a conviction within us. We're not going to do that because when people come into our church, it makes it, it's weird. They don't understand what they're doing. It makes people feel uncomfortable. So we're just going to kind of regulate that, relegate that. Missed my word there. Uh, and just kind of not do that publicly in the worship. So that's the history that we have. That we've changed that over the years, okay? So I think we're at a healthier place. Let me tell you another example of, of how we erred in traditions, okay? Look around you. Look up here. Is there any place for us to baptize people within the gathering of our church body? There's not. There's nothing. Maybe there's a trap door under here, okay, for me. There's not. Uh, there's nothing behind that wall because as designers thought about this church, baptism and the Lord's Supper were just not on their radar. We're not high priorities. And let me just say, I think that is a mistake, okay? Which is why over the last years, we've tried to elevate these traditions, okay? And so, one of the things that we have tried to determine as a leadership of this church is that we want to maintain both tradition as well as relevance, so if you go and meet with Eric and Stephanie after uh, our service here and you talk with them about the uh, worship principles that we have established, one of those worship principles, if you get a copy of that, you'll read that we want to maintain being rooted as well as relevant. Rooted as well as relevant. Now, you can fall off of a horse on both sides, can't you? You can fall off on the rooted side, the ancient, traditional side, and you can fall off on the relevant side. But what we want to try to do is put our stake in the ground and say tradition, biblical tradition, is good, and yet we don't live in the first century. We live in the 21st century. So we want to take these rooted traditions and practice them in the modern or postmodern world. Amen? Amen. I spent way too much time on that because I'm passionate about it. So now we've got to go on to verse, verses 17, and 20, 17 through 22 and really fly through here, okay? Uh, this is where he begins the specific instructions to them about the Lord's Supper, okay? If you want to divide this text, verse 17 through 34, you can divide it like this. Verses 17 through 22 is the context Verses 23 through 26 is the commemoration of the Lord's Supper. So context, commemoration, and then beginning in verse 27, we get the caution, okay? Context, 
commemoration and caution. So let's read quickly verses 17 through 22, okay, the context. This is what was happening in Corinth about the Lord's Supper. He says, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry and another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. Okay, there's a lot here, okay, and it's a bit confusing. I'll give you that. And we don't have time to go into all the hubbub that was happening here, but suffice it to say, this is not, Corinth is not the model church, okay? Particularly in this area. They don't have it all together. And in fact, I mean, how amazing is this, that in verse 17, he says, I do not commend you, but but because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. I mean, what is he saying? He's basically saying, you guys, you guys are having such a bad experience of church and getting along together that you might as well just stay home and kind of keep the door shut for a while. That's how bad this is. Now, where's the grace in that? The grace in that is as I look here, I was like, you know what? Guess what? The church has always been a mess. Sometimes we need to hear that. Man, the church has always had its problems. And if you want to see a church with problems, just read all the way through 1 Corinthians, okay? So what's going on here at this, at this time in the first century in Corinth as they're celebrating this meal? Uh, at this time, they would celebrate it with another feast they had called a love feast. So it wouldn't just be they come up and, and have one cracker, but they would celebrate a full meal together. And that either at the beginning or the end of that love feast, they would do the ceremonial part of which we do, where they would eat the bread together or drink of the same cup together. And what's happening in Corinth, where you have this high disparity between the haves and the have-nots, is that some of the have-nots are coming and they're just gorging themselves, eating everything before everybody else shows up. Some of them, it says, even getting drunk. They're getting drunk at church. Like, that's a pretty big deal. But here's, here, the, in all of this conversation in 1 Corinthians 11, here's the main point that I want us to get to, okay? The main point, and this is where I say, I don't know that we've done, I have done, okay, I'll speak, that I have done an adequate job of saying that this communion meal is not just vertical, but this communion meal is incredibly horizontal. Because what is Paul so up in arms with them about? about their relationships with one another, about their selfishness, about their division. 
And it's because they have all this division and selfishness and, and infighting that he says the, the communion meal is just a disaster and reflects poorly upon Jesus. So what's that say for you and me? Folks, our relationships with one another are not incidental to the Lord's table. Our relationships with one another are not incidental to the Lord's table. In fact, all this infighting and stuff has is just caused shame on the church and the gospel. And what we typically do, guilty, when we come forward to participate in the Lord's Supper is we think about me and Jesus. Am I alone here? I mean, I'm, I'm leading the deal, okay? And I'm confessing that we don't adequately, often enough, Think about not just the vertical, but the horizontal. How are my relationships with the people that I'm celebrating this meal with? And he's going to go on and caution us in the latter part of the chapter of examining ourselves. And a lot of that has to do not only with, with my own heart, but it also has to do with my relationships. And so there are times that when you have a strained relationship or you have an unreconciled relationship with someone in the body, you've been selfish towards someone or someone else has been selfish with you and there's, there's, a, there's a barrier, there's tension there, then I think what he's implying is you, do, you need to do some work before you come to the family table. There's a place where Jesus says, if you're going to the altar and you know that someone has something against you, leave your gift at the altar and go and be reconciled with your brother or sister. And it's a similar kind of thought here in 1 Corinthians, as complex as it is. When we celebrate the Lord's table, we are not only remembering Jesus, we're also remembering that we are mysteriously, spiritually, organically related to the people that we are celebrating it with. And when those relationships are soiled, strained, in tension, then it's our duty to go and be reconciled as we worship or before we worship. First-hand experience. When our relationships are not right, we quench the Spirit of God among us. Relationships are always going to be hard. There's always going to be struggles. Wherever there are people, there are problems. But when there are factions and division among us, the Spirit of God is quenched. And so he is saying, do the work. Get right. What he's not saying is, don't ever celebrate the Lord's Supper again. There's grace. He's saying, you're going to celebrate the Lord's table. There's grace for sinners. If, if you and I 
uh, have to be completely clean and sinless to come to the table, then guess what? We'll never come to the table. <laughs> so in the last seven days, all of us have sinned against God and against one another. He's not saying you have to be sinless to celebrate the Lord's table. He's saying when these factions are not dealt with, you need to deal with the factions before you come and celebrate in unity at the table. Okay? we got to move on. Verses 23 through 26. Verses 23 through 26 is the commemoration. Okay? Quickly here, uh, we read this often. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as, I have, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Just a couple quick things about this language here. In verse 23, we see the exact same language for something that's really important that we saw last week in chapter 15 about the gospel. And if you were here, you remember that it was about receiving the good news that was delivered to us, okay? And here again, he uses this same language about communion because communion pictures the gospel. Christ delivered himself up for us and we receive Jesus, so this language that he uses in verse, verse 23 shows us the centrality of the Lord's table because it mimics the, very centra- it mimics the very words of the centrality of the gospel in chapter 15, okay? Notice also here that we are receiving the bread and the cup. Gospel 101, again, it is a gift, It is a gift. When you come forward this morning for communion, you are receiving bread and you are receiving the cup. You're not doing something to earn it. You are, like you did in salvation, you are receiving something as a gift. And in this case, it is a tangible, physical reminder of the blood shed of Jesus so that you can not just hear the preacher say, Jesus loves you, That's good, that's the gospel, 1 Corinthians 15, but that you can taste and feel and touch so that when you come forward and you take the bread and the cup, you put on your lips, Jesus bled for me. Jesus bled for me. And Jesus not only bled for me, Jesus bled for my brothers and sisters whom I am celebrating at this table with, whom I am under gospel obligation to get right with if I am not yet right with. In baptism, as well as the Lord's Supper, in baptism, as well as the Lord's Supper, we have this intersection of three wonderful things. We have the intersection of history, community, and mystery. History, community, and mystery. We are intersecting with history because when Jesus died for us, we are spiritually with him. When he was resurrected from the grave, we are identifying with what God has done in history. And we're doing that in community, and we're celebrating that in this one of two traditions or both traditions 
where God mysteriously works within this tradition to make us holy and sanctify us as his people. The Lord's Supper is the intersection of what God has done in history, that we are united as a community, and that Jesus is doing something, in fact, mysteriously as we participate in this tradition. Very quickly, verses 27 through 24, the caution, okay? The caution. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Let me stop right there, okay? Did you catch that up in, uh, what verse is it? Uh, Verse 30. The seriousness of this, in verse 30 he says, you have not examined yourself, you have not been taking of this rightly, That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. Now, when is the last time I preached that verse? Partaking of the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner, with unreconciled relationships, And this is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. So in an understatement, let me say, this is important. We're celebrating the same thing, the same event, the same tradition that they did then. So what would be an unworthy manner? What would it mean to celebrate at the Lord's table in an unworthy manner? Where I've already alluded to some of it, okay? What would it be to celebrate in an unworthy manner? First of all, let me say this. This strikes us really weird in 2019, okay? I know that, but, you know, for 2,000 years of the history of the church, when you would hear churches talk about excommunicating someone, do you realize what they're saying? Now, we hear this in political seasons, like with Catholic candidates that the Catholic Church is disapproving of their politics or whatever. They're going to be excommunicated. What are they saying? They're actually not saying you can never step foot in our church anymore. What they're actually saying as a church is they're saying you are, you are not welcome at the table because you have not repented of your sin and made right restoration with the church family. That's what excommunication has historically meant. You can't come to the table because you've been excommunicated, ex from communion. So what would be partaking in an unworthy manner? First of all, let me say this. If uh, you're here this morning and you're not sure if you're a believer or not, let me encourage you, don't come to the table. 
because you would be not discerning the body and blood of Jesus. You would be not discerning what it is that Jesus has done for you in salvation. So if you're here this morning and you're unsure, if you're saved, you're unsure, if you know Jesus, let me encourage you to do this. Just remain where you're seated and pray and do business with God. Or better yet, come to one of the prayer stations at the front or at the back and ask to be prayed for. Ask a question, how do I get in on this? How do I get in communion with God and with God's people? Okay? So if you're unsure or if you're unsaved this morning, don't participate. Secondly, as I've already said, if there, there may be some among us that need to not participate today because you need to get right. You've been selfish. Maybe you, you're not coming and eating all the crackers. You know, you're not getting drunk when you come to church, but you're being selfish towards someone in the body. You're being, um, there's just something that you need to do, you need to do repair on. In a moment, I'm going to give you time to examine your heart and to examine your relationship. And then thirdly, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to step out here and be somewhat bold, but let me say this, that for 2,000 years of history, these two celebrations, these two traditions have gone hand in hand, baptism and the Lord's Supper. And some people ask me, I haven't been baptized yet, but I want to take of the Lord's Supper. And let me tell you what just let me just dive into that a little bit. I don't think you're necessarily sinning, okay, to take the Lord's Supper if you haven't been baptized, but I think what you're doing is you're ignoring the first step because the traditional order and the historical order of this is that you get baptized and then you partake of the Lord's Supper. Baptism is the initiation into the family, and then communion is the family meal. So I'm not saying that you're sinning. I'm not saying that you're, you should worry about coming forward and being knocked down dead, but I'm just saying you got the order mixed up. So why not get baptized? September the 8th. Why not take both of these traditions as spiritual nourishment that is important for your soul, okay? Finally, let me say this. Some of you are wide-eyed, like, I've got way too much to say here. We can't be a faithful church, a faithful biblical church, if we don't take seriously to maintain the traditions. I can't... uh, make an airtight case this morning that the Bible says you have to celebrate the Lord's table every week at worship. Okay, I I can't make an airtight case on that. But let me just point to one verse, Acts 2, 42, in the very first church. It says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and the prayers. And here's a little homework, okay? Most, and some of you are going to check me on this. I know you will, okay? But most commentators say that the breaking of the bread there is not just going over to one another's house and having spaghetti, okay? But they were breaking the bread together. They were remembering. They were celebrating this tradition. And that's what they were devoted to. So we've always been a church that's been devoted to the apostles' teaching, biblical doctrine, biblical teaching, I mean, 
People love the fellowship of this church. We want to be devoted to the fellowship. And of course, we want to be devoted to prayer. Why will we not also be devoted to baptism and the breaking of bread? The two, only two traditions that Jesus said, do this and remember me. First, he said, go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then he says, do this often in remembrance of me. Why do we need it often? Because of the way we started. We're forgetful. I'm forgetful. And every week, you and I go through this rat race of the world, and we try to make it on, did you make the team? Did you make the grades? Do you make enough money? Did you get the advancement? Are you good enough? And we're judged Monday through Saturday by meritocracy. Not democracy, but meritocracy. Did you merit it? And you know why you need the Lord's table? Because you need to come forward and you need to receive on your lips that Jesus' words, this is my body for you. This is my blood for you. And you didn't merit it this week. And you didn't forfeit it this week. I gave it to you freely as grace. And so you need to come and be reminded by touching it, by tasting it, by seeing it, that the grace of Jesus is for you. And we don't trample on that grace, but we do receive that grace. I want to give you a moment to do some heart work as we should more frequently. I want to ask you to close your eyes as I close my eyes and take a moment to examine your heart and examine your relationship and do business with God as the Holy Spirit puts things on your heart. Pledge to obey the Holy Spirit's leading. invite our servers to go ahead and come forward and take the elements.
Would you pray with me? Father God, the, uh, though the seriousness of this message and the tone of these words from the Apostle Paul are holy and serious, we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would also fill our hearts not only with the seriousness of this act of sacrament, but you would also fill our hearts with the joy of it that you have sacrificed your son, that Jesus has come to us, God in the flesh, perfectly obeying Monday through Saturday, Sunday to the law that we could never obey and sacrificing himself upon the cross to pay the penalty for our sins, shedding his blood for each and every sin of ours. God, thank you that you love us so much that you would go to such lengths to show your grace, to give us your grace through Jesus. And so as we partake in seriousness, we also pray, Lord, that the joy of the Lord would be in our hearts as we remember your incredible love for us to the extent of brokenness and blood mysteriously move in us this morning, mysteriously move in our hearts vertically and through our hearts horizontally with one another as we remember. As they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of this vine until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Thanks be to God. Come and celebrate.